0: We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. So if you would open your Bibles or open up an app on your phone and get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, we are actually going all the way from verse 21 to verse 48, which is a long section of Scripture regardless, but it's really long here because there's six specific real world that affect all of our lives' topics in six paragraphs in this section uh, that we are not going to delve into in detail today. We're going to actually look at the main purpose of what Jesus is doing through this section, what he's calling us to, which means you all are going to have to do some work on this passage. One, to go out and reflect on each paragraph after this individually. Um, which really we would recommend you do every time there's a message. The next thing is go uh, on our website to our blog or our Facebook page, and there's going to be a link to a series of resources regarding each one of these topics. Specifically, it'll drive you into, in regards to the marriage section, our views on divorce and remarriage, and some papers that you can read more detail on if you want. Also, go to the bookstore. If you look at some of these things like anger or truth-telling or love and you want a resource to pick up a book specifically on that, they're an incredible resource for you. And lastly, go to leadership within the church, small group leaders, pastors, whatever that is. If this stirs something up within you, which Jesus is wanting it to do in this passage, and really work that out. Take some personal responsibility to really work these things out. But we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, and I'm just gonna read the first few verses of this. 521, Jesus says this You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I'm going to finish this off by reading the last section in Matthew 5:43. He says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded by uh, what you say. It doesn't even seem right at many points. And yet, in your word, there is life. Uh, Your word is meant to truly carve us up. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces us and judges our thoughts and intentions, the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And yet, God, it heals us. So I pray that you would bring your healing into our lives. God, where we resist you, God, take over. Where we need your compassion, display it to us. God, where we need to be redirected, redirect us. God, where we need to be launched out of our comfort and out of our fears, God, bring us in to your truth and your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's been said that Jesus was an enigma. Now, the first time I heard that phrase, I had to look up the word enigma. Like, what exactly does that mean? And it basically means this. Jesus is puzzling. He's confusing at points. And that's where I'd say it's not just that Jesus was an enigma, but that he is an enigma. We read a section like Matthew 5, 21 through 48, and we hear things like, It's not just about not murdering, but if you've been angry, you've committed murder already. We hear things like if somebody slaps you on the right cheek with the back of their hand, turn to them your left cheek. Love your enemies. Love your enemies? Like, what? Maybe pray. I know he says that, but love them? And it's kind of like, really? Does he really mean this? And what we intend to do oftentimes, for those of us who are Christians, and say we want to live into the Bible, is we try to kind of create reinterpretations. Well, here's what he must mean. And we reinterpret it in such a way that we can live it out or we can think we're living it out. That's very much the same thing that the religious leaders were doing in this time. And yet Jesus moves in and he says to them, the law, the Bible, for them the Torah, the law, actually the way you're seeing it and interpreting it, is being misinterpreted and therefore misapplied. And he takes it deeper He redefines the law by going deeper. Then he wants to refocus them around the primary priority and then ultimately show them how they can live out what he's talking about. So it's redefinition, refocus, and what I'll call regeneration. But what Jesus is doing is going deeper to become quite disruptive. Now, I want you to see this. He isn't going deeper to become quite disruptive just for the Pharisees and the scribes and the hearers of this sermon right now. He's doing it for you. He's doing it for me. I mean, he's doing it for you to really disrupt us, for us to understand this. So let's get at this. Jesus, first and foremost, what we need to see in this is he is redefining the law. He is redefining what is typically religiously known. And he's showing them the real intent of the scripture. And here's the point. He is showing them that the real interpretation, the real intent of the scripture is to get at the heart truthfully. The real point of the scriptures is to get at the heart of the matter and to get at humanity's hearts, your heart Truthfully, now, how many of you have ever known a strong-willed person? Raise your hand. You, some of you guys are not telling the truth. You can you can participate. How many of you know a strong-willed person? Okay, I'll, I'll, let me say this: was stubborn. Let's use that word. Stubborn. Okay, everybody. Many of us know strong-willed children, right? And children can be strong-willed and people write books about it because it's hard to live with those people. It's also hard to live with strong-willed and stubborn adults, but strong-willed kids are like these kind of kids that get in a car and you're driving in a van and they unlock their car seat. They get out and they just stand in the middle of a van like they're surfing as you're driving and you go, ah, that's not safe. Get back in your seat. They don't do anything. And then you go, get in your seat and they look back at you and go, I will never in my entire life get back in my seat. And you're like, oh, this is why Jesus talks about anger, right? Like, (laughs) is this child? It's interesting. Right now, uh, PBS has reissued a new version of Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Um, But it's now in cartoon form, and it's called Daniel Tiger. And Daniel takes these old episodes of, I said Mr. Robinson's, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Sorry. (laughs) You guys are all like, I've never seen that one. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So it literally starts, Daniel Tiger. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And it's Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. But they take the old episodes, and they're trying to teach children, the same way Mr. Rogers was, they're trying to teach them what's now called empathy. Now, if you go, what is empathy? Essentially, it's this, how to be a good neighbor, which is essentially this, love. Love. Now, you watch these episodes, and you realize how hard it is to actually love. For instance, Jesus here talks about anger. Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood has an episode on anger, and they teach you this song in this episode. It says, when you feel so mad that you're going to roar, take a deep breath and count to four. And then they'll go one, two, three, four. Now, let me tell you, a lot of you guys need that, so memorize that song, (laughs) and apply that. But it's funny, because science has actually proven that moments where you slow down, and you're living emotionally up here, practical life and science both show you don't make good decisions when you're up here. You say things you wish you wouldn't say, you do really dumb things, and so, stopping and going, I'm so angry that you take a deep breath and you count to four, what it does is they'll say, it moves you from here to here when you're counting one, two, three, four. And all of a sudden, now it's more rational. But what they're recognizing is that there's something inside of us that, let's just say this, is irrational. Something that doesn't contribute to our own good or the people around us good. So, let's slow down, try to minimize our emotions, whatever boiling up in us, and then from there we can really work on something. But they're acknowledging that we've got issues like crazy that prevent us from being a good neighbor, prevent us from love. And Jesus says that's the heart. This is the area where PBS is not going to be able to say it, But if you didn't know this, Mr. Rogers was actually channeling Jesus a lot. You should read about it. It's pretty amazing. But in the end, he understood how humans change. But ultimately, there's a fundamental problem in humanity, and it's the heart. So when Jesus goes through this and he says all these things, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I'm trying to go to the intent. He's taking us deeper to the motive. He says, anger is murder. Murder. It's the root of murder. So therefore, it's murder. He isn't just saying it's kind of like murder. People don't murder people unless they're, they're angry. He's going, it's murder. Then he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked upon a man or woman with lust, you've committed adultery already. You've heard it said, men at this time, that you could divorce your wife for any reason that she displeased you. I'm actually telling you that's not true. Commitment really matters. There are very few things that are grounds for divorce in God's eyes. And even then, you're supposed to apply these other things, like don't retaliate and love your enemies. Tell the truth. Let your word be your word. In a world where people lie and they make you take oaths, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, let me tell you, as Jesus goes deeper, it is disruptive. Because we all have these moments where we're like, listen, I'm not perfect, but in the end, I'm not. And these things come to our mind, like I've never cheated on my spouse, or maybe I have, but there was reasons for it, or I've never really killed somebody, or there are like these really bad people out there like ISIS and whatever. And all of a sudden at this moment, we're realizing Jesus here is talking about everybody. Like if this is true, we're all murderers. We're all adulterers. We're all liars, thieves, and cheats. We're all those who don't love God and love our neighbor the way God intends us to. Jesus is saying hatred really matters. The objectification of people really matters. Commitment really matters. Trust in a society really matters. If it doesn't, these societies break down into chaos. Trust really matters. Retaliation leads to chaos. Loving your enemies really leads to a better society. What Jesus is doing here is really rhetorically, and that word just means in sermon form, by talking. He's trying to get all of us to apply the teaching that he had, that why is it that we look in the law, the the speck in other people's eyes, look at them and ignore the log that's in our own eyes. He's basically trying to go, I'm going to show you, you have a log of a problem. Basically, here's what he's saying. The problem with the world is you and me. That's what he's saying. That's right now what he wants to do. The heart. He's going to the heart of the matter. Now, if you look at the heart in the Bible, the heart is central in the Bible. Absolutely central. So you see this moment where God, because of sin coming to the world, he goes on this rescue mission and he calls a people, the nation of Israel. And he calls them to be a people in such a way that the world would know they were made for God, that they were made by and for God. And he gives them laws, and these laws would have led them to live as a loving and just community in a world that was stuck on themselves because of sin. St. Augustine is one of the greatest church fathers, not only one of the greatest church fathers, but one of the greatest minds, far from perfect, but one of the greatest minds the world has ever seen. Many people say the beginning of Western civilization started in St. Augustine's thought. St. Augustine defines sin as a radical curvature inward. Right? So you think about in Genesis, they noticed that they were naked. The idea is their eyes before were on God and neighbor and now they're on themselves and we've been stuck on ourselves ever since. And if we're stuck on ourselves, God's trying to get us to see being stuck on yourself is being stuck on stupid. Right? He's not just saying human beings, you're stupid. He's going, that way of life like this that's constantly focused on yourself is a huge problem to you and to your neighborhood because it ultimately doesn't, recognize who you're made for, God, and what you're made for loving your neighbor. So in the end, God gives Israel this law. He says, if you live like this, you'll live as a loving people. They get laws, they disobey, they get laws, they disobey, they get laws, they disobey, they get laws, they disobey. They're exhausted. Everybody's going, what's the problem? God ultimately goes, the heart's the problem. So the promise of the new covenant is in Ezekiel 36, this promise that I'm gonna come and give you new hearts and put my spirit within you. I'm gonna take out of you hearts of stone and put into you hearts of flesh. Hearts of stone that are stuck on self rather than on God and neighbor, and give you hearts of flesh that beat for me and for your neighbor and for your neighborhood. That's the promise. Now, Jesus comes on and he continues to talk about the heart. And he's talking to all these religious people who are all concerned with what we do and what we put into our body. And he's like, do you not know that this whole conversation about food, do you not know what we put into our body, we ultimately excrete in the bathroom? That's what he says. So why are you so concerned? It's not what goes into a human being that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out of them. For out of men and women's hearts comes murder, theft, adultery. Lying, cheating, stealing, anti-love being, selfishness come out of the heart. So the focus of Jesus and the focus of God is to get at the heart of the matter by getting at the heart, getting at the motives, getting at your intentions. So when you sit there at many moments and you realize, like, I did something bad, I said something, or I really disrupted an environment, or I did whatever, first and foremost, recognize it's because your eyes are on yourself rather than upon God and upon your neighbor. James 4 talks about this in verse 1. It says, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? And then he says this, is it not because you want something and don't have it, so you fight and quarrel? Now, let me tell you, if you've never reflected upon that verse, live your life the next week And just think, when you feel disruption and tension in a relationship and you fight and quarrel, whether that's by you going into a corner and going, I'm never going to talk to him, or you screaming and yelling, however you handle conflict, recognize, why am I so mad? This is key. So this is where Daniel the tiger could help you, added to some biblical wisdom. When you feel so whatever that you want to roar, you want to lust, or you want to lie, take a deep breath, count to four. And then say, why am I so mad? Why am I so compelled to engage in lustful thinking and action? Why do I want to lie? Like, what am I really after? And then keep asking yourself why. And the more times you ask yourself why, not why do they act like that, that's typically what we do, right? The speck in somebody else's eye. Why are they like that? If they weren't like that, that's Jesus is going, that's not the problem. Zero in on your heart. Ask why. Why does this bother me so bad? Even if what that person is doing is problematic. Ask yourself why you're reacting like that. And as you do, things will get exposed. Things will get revealed. And then you can look very deeply into this passage and go, how is it that Jesus causes me or is calling me to live? The heart's the focus. And he says he renews, restores, regenerates, changes the heart. Let me just say this quickly on Ezekiel 36. If you're sitting in this room, I want you to truly ask yourself the question of have you really been brought into the life of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Have you really believed is the biblical word. If you're sitting there and you're going, I'm constantly up against myself. I'm constantly getting in my own way. I'm constantly making a problem. You've got to go, Lord, Take over, And here's the thing. We don't always know, like, did this experience happen for me? And even for those of us who have had the experience of believing in God and what we would call being born again, this challenge is we're always still up against something in our heart that God is constantly still transforming. Here's the point. He changes your heart. He does. Go to him. We're going to talk in more detail about that here in a minute of what it really means to look at this. Here's the next thing we ought to see from this long section of Scripture. He redefines the law something deeper, redefines the point of the Scripture as wanting to transform us. It's a transformative endeavor. But now he refocuses us on what it's all about, on why this stuff matters, why anger's so bad, why lust is so bad. He refocuses on what it's all about and he refocuses us on the priority of love. Now listen to me, the priority of love is the priority of relationships. The priority of relationships is the priority of people. Very simple statement. Tattoo it to your forehead, okay? People matter to God. I was kidding about the tattooing it on your forehead for any of you out there. People matter to God. People matter to God. That's why God is so ravished, obsessed, with love. And do you want to know why people matter to God? Because First John four says God is love. God created us in love. God goes on a rescue mission in love. God is love. People matter to God. My youngest daughter's name's Harmony. When we brought Harmony home, uh, one of my best friends, Brian Berger, who's a pastor here, sent me a verse that has now become the life verse for Harmony. As far as um, I'm concerned in what I pray for, and it's Colossians three twelve through 14. Now listen to this. Paul says this, put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he's saying put on, actively put on these things, compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience, put on bearing with one another, Put on that if someone has a complaint against another, put on forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he says this, and above all, like those are all really, really important. Put them on, put them on, put them on. But above all, put on love, which binds everything, not some things, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why did Brian send me that verse? Her name's harmony. Put on love, which binds, the love is the binding agent, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, Jeremy said this at communion, and truth be told, you live your life inside yourself and amongst people, and you know harmony is not the thing most of us would define our lives by. Like, am I integrated, harmonious as a human? Like, no. Does my family feel like it's just harmony, like everything's in sync. Like never, right? does my workplace feel harmonious? Does our church feel harmonious? Does this world feel harmonious? Like never, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's refocusing us on the priority of love because God cares about people intensely. So look at this. If you look at this and you go, anger, when he says anger, You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, anger. And if you're angry in your heart, you need to deal with it. So if you're sitting in worship and you're raising your hands, he says, read this passage, this is what he's saying. You're raising your hands or you're about to take communion and you know you have something against somebody or somebody has something against you, drop the communion elements, put down your hands in worship, and go make it right because people matter to God. You think that in the privacy of your own thoughts, In the privacy of you and your computer screen that this is just about me and my own challenges or my own wants. Lust destroys people. And people matter to God. And what you do in private will play itself out in public. God cares about people. Therefore, God hates adultery. God hates lust because he cares about people. Lying destroys the social fabric of a society. So the simple statement of let your yes be yes and your no be no has everything to do with the neighborhood, right? Tell the truth. That's why Mr. Rogers taught that and Daniel Tiger's picking it up is because Jesus said, if we don't have truth, we don't have love and if we don't have love, we're a disaster, right? We don't live in a very trusting society right now. So how do you begin to build trust, right? When you get so angry, when somebody's disrespected you, like even to the point, what if they've actually like backhanded you across the right side of the cheek? Do we build trust by boom, punching them in the nose? No, our world kind of does that, it doesn't work. So maybe just try to turn the other cheek. Take it upon yourself, like really? (laughs) Somebody tells you, by law, you have to go a mile with them, go the mile, and then think to yourself, I wonder why they needed me so bad to go this mile, rather than, I can't believe they're making me do this, and I'm counting steps all the way to a thousand, and a thousand, I'm dropping my stuff, and going, legally, you can't make me go any further. Jesus says, go the extra mile. Why? Because it might build trust, and trust has to do with love, and people matter to God. Love your enemies. Really? Really? That has to be the most insane section in this whole text, if not the whole Bible. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Why? Because people, whether evil or good, matter to God. He makes his sun rise on them. He makes his rain fall on them. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's he refocusing us on? He's refocusing us on the point of the Bible. And the point of the law to them, the Torah, was love. The Bible tells us this. If you go, oh, geez, Love, that sounds kind of hallmarky. y Let me just say this really quick. Biblical love, love defined by God, which is true love, is not hallmark love, it's costly love. That's what's so disruptive about what he's saying here in the whole section of this. It's not hallmark love, it's costly love, but the point of the Bible is love. Look at this. If you turn to Romans, the book of Romans, in chapter 13, there's this whole section, it starts and it says this. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Who's the person that's fulfilled the law? The one that's loved one another. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any command are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says this, Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Galatians, verse 5 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, I'm telling you, God's intense about love. God's obsessed with love because people matter to God. He is absolutely obsessed with it. When I was preparing for this, I read a story, came across a story. It was written, um, I was reading a commentary by a professor who had written, who, a student of his, had written this paper, this story. It's a story that he wrote on paper, hence a paper, so not an academic paper. But the story is called Mugged by Jesus. Just sit with that for a minute. Mugged by Jesus. This guy who wrote this story is named Jared, and he said this, it was my first year, I was 18 years old, studying fine arts at university. I went to get on a train one night, and I was contemplating all of this stuff I'd been reading from Martin Luther King Jr., nonviolent resistance, how much he talks about love, Um, many of his lectures that are published in a book called Strength to Love. He said, I'm pondering all these things, I don't even know how long into my pondering, all of a sudden I see out of the corner of my eye, this very large man that's in a black tracksuit. And he begins to get closer to me and closer to me. And he bumps up against me. And then he says, I hear these words, money. And he said, those words kind of took me out of my pontificating about the world stupor. And he said, he sat there, like, what, what, what are you talking about? He said, give me your money. And he said, so immediately he grabs his wallet, which is like, that was the stupidest thing to do. But as he does this, he's reflecting back and he goes, this whole idea of fight or flight is true. Like at one moment, I'm like, I'm going to run. But he said, then I recognize in my mind, I have all of my backpack on. I have all of my art gear. He's like, at best, it would be a waddle. And this guy was pretty big, pretty athletic looking. It wouldn't have worked. So flight wouldn't work. But then he said, I'm reflecting. And I was like, I'm 5'7" fight sure as heck isn't going to work either. Like, I could try to fight this guy, but it's not going to work. So he said, he has his wallet in hand, and he switches hands, and he puts out his hand, and he goes, I'm Jared. And he said, the guy goes, I'm James. And he goes, no, 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 I'm Jared, not James. And he goes, no, I'm James. He's like, oh, he said it was the weirdest exchange ever. So the guy's like, give me your money. And he's like, well, I'm... Jared, you're James. And he said, at that moment, all of a sudden, it was like something happened to him, and he remembered this stuff he'd been reading in Martin Luther King that said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then he said this thought of, and this whole idea of love even your enemies. So he held onto the man's arm, and he said, James. And he said he looked down at the man's arm, and his arm was filled, he said, like a pincushion with places that this man had put drugs in his arm, and he saw cuts on his arm because of where this man had mutilated himself. So he's thinking all the while, like, I need to love my enemies. This man's trying to kill me, and he wants all my money, and he's looking at his arms, and he said he's just beginning to well up with compassion. And later, he reflects upon this, like, what has this man been through that led him to this point, that led him to the point of putting Things in his arms of drugs and slashing his arms because of the pain that he'd experienced. And he said he just sat there and held on the arm. All the while, now a woman starts running in in a black tracksuit. She's like, let's go! And all of a sudden it disrupts Jared, the guy who's being mugged, and it disrupts James, the mugger. And James looks and clearly James is with the woman. She's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. So he starts getting ready to go and James, or Jared, sorry, I'm gonna get my J's wrong. Jared pulls out of his pocket a New Testament and he goes, James, take this. My number's in the back of it. James grabs it from Jared, looks at it, and just stops dead in his tracks and gets super angry. And he goes, what are you going to give me a Bible for? I'm going to hell. And Jared says, I didn't have time to give him some great theological answer, so all he said was, James, we're all going to hell. That's why we need Jesus And he said at that moment, James just starts weeping, crying. And he's like, this is like the most awkward moment. There's this guy who was trying to kill you, trying to mug you. He's huge, and he's just snot bubble tears, just like crying and crying and crying. So he said he just sat there like, what in the world? He begins to share his life story with him, right? I can only imagine what the woman's doing at this point. But he starts sharing his life story with him, so he's like, hey your mom kicked you out of the house recently you can come live with me he's trying to say all these things so now the woman pulls up in a car she pulls up really fast stops and she's like let's go i got a bag i got a bag and so he turns to jared like this and he starts running and he starts yelling at the girl as she's yelling i got the bag he's like i got a bible i got a bible Jared then reflects this at the end of this whole paper. He says, James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. Despite the reality that throughout the New Testament, the cross is not only how God saves it, which it is, but it is also the very shape of how we live to witness to that salvation. It's the very shape of how we're to live to witness to that salvation. I'm aware that enemy love still scandalizes many, a fundamentalist and a liberal alike. For who actually wants a savior who loves the enemies that we want to kill? Who actually wants to witness to the God whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust alike? Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so bad That God actually wants to heal those who have hurt us so bad to the point that they hurt no more. Who wants a Christ who comes to us in the pain that we so desperately want to run from? I read that, and I'm reflecting on those questions, and I go, God, everything within my flesh that's not of you wants to go, I don't want a God like that. But then, like a ton of bricks, God says, you have to have a God like that. It reminded me of Romans chapter 5. For in yet, while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. You want to know why? Because people matter to God. Because you matter to God. Because humanity matters to God. If we sit at this moment and we go, how do we actually change? This is this word, Regeneration. If you don't know what that word means, it's literally if somebody's had like a spinal cord injury and the spinal cord begins to redevelop, right? Or nerves, you've had nerve damage and it takes so long and nerves are a perfect example because they grow slowly but surely over time and regenerate after an injury. Sin, folks, is the greatest injury of all. It literally made us spiritually dead. God breathes life into us. And if you wanna know, how do I actually live a life like this? He says very clearly, you've got to act like sons. Do you want to know how to love your enemies? Live like sons, live like daughters of God. The greatest promise of the gospel, hear this really clearly. The greatest promise of the gospel is not the forgiveness of your sin. That is a massive benefit of the gospel. Don't understand me. Christ died for our sins. But the essence and centrality of the gospel is that you and I become children of God. And children of God so we are because of his grace. The greatest promise of the gospel is we get to fully, unhindered, experience the love of God the Father as his children. The greatest promise of the gospel is that we are brought into the very life of God. That the righteousness we experience is a righteousness because we're in the righteousness of God. We're in Him. We experience all of the blessings and privileges that Jesus had because we're in Him. So now you go, how do we live out enemy love to be united to the enemy lover As those who once were his enemies, but now are his sons and daughters. And there were like nerves, folks. It doesn't, you don't just sit there and go, how does this happen? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That the moment you sit down and you have actual practices, like my arm, when I had surgery, I had an ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction in my arm. I played baseball, so if you know sports, that's called Tommy John surgery when i had tommy john surgery when i left essentially what they did is they regenerated in a very real way my arm and put a new ligament in my elbow but when i ended my arm was as stiff as a rock i'd been given a new elbow like many of you may have been given a new heart but i had to work it out it didn't work that way so slowly but surely i began to do therapy this is what he's telling you to do and when he says pray for those who persecute you what happens when you begin to pray for your enemies Whoever they may be, it may be in your own home, it may be your own spouse, it may be a father or mother, it may be a feeling in a moment that changes the next moment, or it literally may be someone that's out to slit your throat. He says pray for them, because as you pray, it's like a pin in an air cushion. The air just begins to go out, and pretty soon you realize this enemy is just a person. That's what happened to Jared with James. This is just a human, and people matter to God. This person has been hurt and they're doing hurtful things. But as we humanize them and love them through prayer and through tangible action, crazy things happen. I mean, maybe as crazy as you still getting shot in the head, but you can then stand before Jesus and say, I took your word seriously, or there's story and story and story and time and time again of people actually being transformed through costly, sacrificial, courageous love that's in the shape of the cross, So you pray and you pray and then you get around people that are constantly, the book of Hebrews says, spurring you on to greater love and good deeds. After the last service, this man came up to me and said, I am so disrupted by God and I'm so churned up, but I am so scared to live a life of love. And I said, me too, man, me too. And we need the Holy Spirit and I need people around me that are reminding me of God's love and calling me into this love. And let me tell you the greatest thing. You will never... Live a life of love like this if you don't understand one fundamental principle and hear this as we close. God loves you. If there's one thing you repeat to yourself over and over today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of your life, God loves you and he's proved it. You go, oh, he could never love me. God loves you, don't ever say that. His love triumphs over the worst of sinners. And it makes people, even who thought they were righteous at the end of their life, like Paul said, I am the chief among sinners, and Christ loved and gave his life for me. God loves you. It's in that power and in that union with Christ that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, even our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy. God, shower us with your love. You cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike in the raining, pouring, thundering love of Christ. May it be showered upon us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.